Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Memorial Day weekend is well underway. A time for honoring our nation's fallen warriors, to be sure, but also for hitting the road. As we begin the summer driving season, we need to stay particularly alert to a growing year-round hazard. It's called road rage. There seems to be more of it than ever, as Chris Van Cleve will report in our Sunday morning cover story. What's happening to drivers on America's roads? It was like this wall of anger from this guy coming, coming at me. The bike is over there, dude! The statistics suggest about one in three people engage in some form of road rage. One in three. One in three. Road rage, the troubling trend ahead on Sunday morning. Hey, hey, believe it or not, the monkeys have been with us for nearly half a century now. This morning, they're looking back and ahead with our Anthony Mason. Here we come, walk down the street. Fifty years ago, a made-for-TV band suddenly became bigger than the Beatles. Did the four of you connect pretty quickly? Instantly. It was scary. Later on Sunday morning, <laughs> monkeying around with the monkeys on their 50th anniversary. In ways big and small, America's relationship with a former World War II enemy is coming full circle. Lee Cowan has a story of reconciliation and return. When the war in the Pacific ended in 1945, U.S. soldiers came home with more than just memories. Japanese flags, taken as souvenirs, ended up in attics and footlockers everywhere. But for many, the time has finally come to send the flags home. We are not uh, telling people to do this. This is in people's minds, and then they find us. <laughs> How a simple flag united two suns, an ocean apart, later on Sunday morning. She's on Broadway and in the running for the Great White Way's top honor. Her name is Jane Krakowski. As Rita Braver will make clear, she's on a roll. Good morning. Good day. How are you this glorious day? Have you she's got a Tony nomination. Well, my apartment search has been a disaster. And a booming TV career. Look at this view. If I can see New Jersey, that means it can see me. But not as a leading lady. You get a character role. I call them second bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always the second banana. <laughs> Whoa! Later on Sunday morning, Jane Krakowski. On a roll. Connor Knighton's on the crowded Trail to Zion National Park. Jan Crawford talked with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Steve Hartman has the story of a Vietnam veteran who came back from the dead. I would hope that he wasn't doing it with the intention to kill somebody or paralyze someone. Next, the human toll of road rage. Hey, hey, with the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. And later, hey, hey, yes. there are monkeys. You have a separate Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Take a deep breath before you head out on that holiday drive, just in case you have an unwelcome brush with road rage. 
Our cover story is reported by Chris Van Cleve. Punches thrown in the middle of a Houston intersection. Grown men and a woman brawling in front of stunned onlookers. Then one of the drivers purposely rammed his truck into the other car before speeding off. Road rage, it seems, is everywhere and caught on video as drivers use bats, fists, guns, even golf balls in street showdowns that can sometimes have tragic consequences. I would hope that he wasn't doing it with the intention to kill somebody or paralyze someone, um, but that's what ended up happening. For Stevie Van Osdale, road rage wasn't a video that went viral. It was a life sentence. I want people to learn from what we did because we were good kids. You know, we were honor students, we were varsity athletes. We were good kids with bright futures. Futures that forever changed one June night in 2006. Then 17-year-old Stevie and four high school friends went for a drive. And one of the boys in the back seat threw a water bottle at another vehicle. It was a mindless teenage prank. But in response, the other car ended up chasing the teens. The driver of the car Stevie was in lost control and hit a tree. Stevie's best friend, who was sitting next to her, died. Stevie was paralyzed from the waist down. And both drivers went to jail. I think that people don't realize that the moment that could change their life is something so minuscule. And I would say it's really hard to realize that that one water bottle changed, you know, five families, five individuals forever. A AAA survey found nearly half of drivers believe aggressive driving is a very serious threat to their personal safety. Fatal road rage incidents are up more than 30% since 2010 and caused more than 1,700 deaths between 2010 and 2014. But anger behind the wheel is not a new phenomenon. It's played out in popular culture for decades. In this Disney cartoon from the 1950s, the mild-mannered Goofy turns Jekyll and Hyde when he gets behind the wheel. Watch where you're going, stupid! But the very real violence of road rage is no laughing matter. What is it about driving that makes some people just so angry? One of the biggest things is it's just stressful. The days of taking a leisurely drive have kind of gone. Now when you're driving, you're really trying to get from A to B, and you're usually haven't given yourself enough time to do that. So just the trip itself is very, very stressful. Mike McCluskey is an expert on aggression and a professor of psychology at Temple University in Philadelphia. Is there something about being in the car, though, that makes people feel more comfortable to express that anger? I mean, you don't see people screaming at each other in the grocery store because somebody's in the express lane with, with, one, items. Right, with one extra <laughs> item. In the car, mm -hmm. you see people lose their minds. Yes. So the car kind of affords us a certain level of safety and anonymity. Even though we may be on the road with a whole bunch of other people, we kind of feel like we're in our own little cocoon in our car. 33.9 million Americans are expected to hit the roads this weekend, 
And McCluskey says millions of us will be driving angry. The statistics suggest about one in three people engage in some form of road rage. One in three? One in three. That's a lot of road rage. It is. Mind you that the majority of that is relatively minor. It's the honking your horn real loud, flipping someone off, screaming. But for a small portion, a couple percent, they engage in much more violent, destructive behaviors, trying to run people off the road, trying to attack people. Do you think about the drivers when you're riding now? No, I do. That's the kind of rage Evan Wilder ran into in 2014 when he was cycling home in Washington, D.C. It was like this wall of anger from this guy coming, coming at me. Evan was riding legally on a shared roadway when this pickup cut him off, sending him crashing into its bumper. That's when the driver became irate. Get your bike off! The bike lane is over there, dude! That's the bike lane! That's the bike lane, dude! And three years earlier, he was almost killed when a truck sideswiped him. Oh, wow. Yeah. That happened so fast. By the time it happened, you don't even know what's going on. What just happened. Is this hard to watch? Yes, this is hard to watch. His intention was to strike me with his truck. When I came out here, I was literally rolling down the windows. Like, do you walk the way you drive? I'm like, stay on the right. When Mike Shen moved to Los Angeles, he was shocked by some of the rage he encountered on the crowded roads, including his own. You can't do that, because here the ego is so attached to people's vehicle, and people start really shouting back, people um, pulling cars in front of me. I was like, okay, someone's going to get hurt. The father of three decided it was time to put his own anger in park, so he started a blog instead called L.A. Can't Drive. It was literally just an inventing platform for a cathartic release, and that was it. Do you really think L.A. can't drive? Yes, hands down. They absolutely cannot drive. Um, I've seen people, uh, actors, constantly driving with their knee, reading scripts. I have a picture on my phone right now I can show you of a woman holding a cat on the freeway. She was going like 20 miles per hour slower than everyone else in the left lane. The site is home to video and pictures of Southern California drivers behaving badly, swerving through traffic, blowing red lights, or using the shoulder as a passing lane, the kind of behavior that often provokes road rage. There's a lot lot of anger out there. There is. Um, A lot of frustration from drivers. Absolutely, and it's it's understandable. I mean, I'm not immune to it, I feel it. How do we decrease the risk of road rage? Before you even get in the car, give yourself time. Like, don't cut everything to last minute. One of the biggest things that exacerbates road rage is someone being stressed out in time urgency. When you're in the car and Someone does something, they cut you off, they're driving too slow, they're tailgating you, whatever it is. One of the simplest things to do, and it sounds trite, but it's helpful, just take a deep breath. If nothing else, it buys you some time. Put things in perspective. This is not a major thing, unless you do something to make it a major thing. I don't remember exactly what our intentions were that night, but I do know that we did not think through the consequences. Stevie Van Osdale now works with a group called Roar, or Reaching Out Against Road Rage. She hopes by telling her story to high school students, her tragedy can be their life-saving cautionary tale. Just stop for one moment before you engage in that and think. Um, Because I think if any of us would have done that that night, 
maybe, you know, Charlie would still be here and maybe I'd still be walking. Um, that's one thing I really wish that I would have done. Ahead? Last five years, we've increased 35%. On the trail to Zion National Park, and it's crowded. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A summertime visit to a national park is an American tradition moving into its second century. Connor Knighton takes the measure of park tourism then and now. Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wilderness is a necessity. Naturalist John Muir published those words in his 1901 collection of essays, Our National Parks. Since then, a few more people have found out about the parks. Not quite thousands, more like 305 million. That's how many visitors showed up at all of the sites run by the National Park Service in 2015. A record-breaking year. And all signs point to this year being even more popular. Are you excited for summer? Are you nervous? <laughs> well, um, we have nervous excitement. <laughs> I'll take it. Jeff Bradybaum is the superintendent of Zion National Park. Four of the past five summers have set park visitation records. These are photos from last summer. Not exactly the type of scene John Muir might have envisioned. Last five years, we've increased 35%, which is nearly a million people. Zion is one of five national parks in Utah, the Mighty Five. Picture this, your next trip, Utah, five national parks. In 2013, the state of Utah launched a campaign to promote its national parks. And boy, did it ever work. Coupled with low gas prices, the marketing push has helped visitation soar at all of Utah's parks. All of five of the Mighty Five in right, one trip? Right, wow. And where yeah. are you visiting from? Visiting from Oahu, Hawaii. And did you come here specifically to see these? Yes, yes. Wow. The parks have become, become bucket list destinations for tourists from all across the world. The sudden surge in visitation has left some of the parks scrambling to deal with crowd control. Last Memorial Day weekend, the traffic actually got so bad at Arches that they just shut down the entrance for two hours. During peak season, cars aren't even allowed in the most popular areas of Zion. In 2000, the park instituted a shuttle bus system. But today, lines to get on the shuttle bus can be well over an hour long. Has the shuttle system reached its capacity? Has it become too successful? In a way, it has. We have a seating capacity of 68 people, and often in the peak seasons, we're running loads of 100 people. So what happens when a national park gets too popular? It's a question frequently debated at an office park on the outskirts of Denver. Typically, if you ask people overall, did they have a good experience, they're largely going to say yes because they got to see the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or Yellowstone or these gorgeous, beautiful, iconic places. But when you dig a little deeper, you might find out that there were things they experienced that could have been better. Carrie Cahill is branch chief of the Park Service Planning Division. She's currently working with Zion to develop a long-term plan for managing the crowds. 
With national parks, it's not just about cramming in as many people as possible. It's about making sure they're having the best possible park experience. At this point, everything is on the table. Even the possibility of requiring permits or timed entry reservations. In certain locations, that might be a very effective and needed tool to ensure that people are having those great experiences and that those resources are protected. In the short term, Zion's doing its best to brace itself for this summer. I noticed some, some porta-potties. Are those new? <laughs> they are new for this year. We're going to measure the times those doors open and close, and uh, each time they're pumped out, we'll have a volume measurement. Oh, wow, that's, that's a fun job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's one we like to contract. Right. <laughs> but arrive early enough, wander far enough, and it's still possible to escape the crowds. And if you do end up having to wait a bit, well, there are worse places to be stuck in traffic. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. May 29th, 1914, 102 years ago today. The day of a largely overlooked maritime calamity. For it was in the pre-dawn hours of that day that the liner Empress of Ireland collided with another ship and sank on the St. Lawrence River. Just hours out of Quebec City en route to Liverpool, England, the Empress spotted the lights of a Norwegian coal carrier, the Storstad, a few miles away. Suddenly, a thick fog obscured each ship from the other's view. Just minutes later, at roughly two in the morning, the Storstad crashed into the Empress, gouging a hole into her starboard side. Immediately, the Empress listed, allowing water to enter not only the gash, but a large number of open portholes as well. The Empress of Ireland sank in just 14 minutes, and although there's no clear verdict as to which ship was to blame, there is no doubt about the disaster's human toll. 1,012 people lost their lives, while just 465 people were saved. Of the 138 children on board, only four survived. Despite the heavy death toll, the Empress of Ireland disaster is barely recalled here in the United States. That's because it's been overshadowed in popular memory by the sinking of the Titanic two years earlier and the torpedoing of the Lusitania in 1915, both with larger losses of life. Still, the sinking of the Empress of Ireland is a tragedy worth remembering and mourning. Still to come, flags of war, symbols of peace. But next, Together. The flexible, flexible Jane Krakowski. My mother is downstairs. <sighs> oh. So is she coming up? Are you kidding? I told them to throw her off the property, but I'm sure she's down there, sitting on a curb, chain smoking, and waiting for me to come out. Just like the day I was born. Jane Krakowski shared a lot of laughs with Tina Fey on the TV series 30 Rock. Now Krakowski is on Broadway and finding time to chat with our Rita Braver. I want to know why I never meet their mother. She sings and dances. I'm always in the dark. 
she can make you laugh. I caught crabs in paradise. And yes, I mean both kinds of crabs. <laughs> she even roller skates. My name is Dinah, and I'm your dining car. <laughs> I don't think I do anything that well, but I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> and there was this dear, sweet... Don't let her fool you. Jane Krakowski has been earning rave reviews. It's a novel, but I didn't know her. I certainly wouldn't have smacked him. As Alona Ritter. The slightly shopworn and very lovelorn perfume store worker in a revival of the 1963 Broadway show, She Loves Me. She's kind of tough and sweet at the same time. Yes, smart, but doesn't make smart choices all the time. Um, I've come to adore her. And why not? She's got a show-stopping dance. You know, me leaping in the air into a split under the ground and then being dragged across the entire stage because you just don't expect, I guess, me at this time in my life and career to be doing that still. At 47, Jane Krakowski seems to be at a very fine time in her life. She's also featured in a hot Netflix series, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. You'll need to be here by 6 every morning to get Buckley up for school. Then get me up at 10, but don't wake me up. Do you want a water? <laughs> it's Krakowski's second project with Tina Fey, after six seasons on 30 Rock. I never should have treated you the way I did, Liz. I need someone who has so little going on in her life, she lets me get all the attention. And I need someone in my life who doesn't listen to a word I say. Thank you. I just got it cut. Sometime. They needed a girl that was blonde in hair color and spirit. And they needed her to be the opposite of Tina Fey. So they hired me. I walked in and they said, you're it. And she's still it. Jane Krakowski, she loves me. On the day we caught up with her, she had just earned a Tony nomination for her role in She Loves Me. What's that like when, you, when that call comes in? It is a relief. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm a slight, still flabbergasted by it, and it's, it's such a joy. The Broadway stage is just a few miles, but a world away from where it all began. This is so crazy. It looks exactly the same. The Barn Theater in suburban New Jersey, near Jane's hometown of Parsippany. By day, her dad was a chemical engineer, her mom a teacher. By night, they were here, on stage. And instead of getting babysitters, my parents would take me to the theater when they were rehearsing for their plays or putting on the shows. How old were you when you first you know, appeared on stage. I think I may have been three or four. I was, I was um, a non-build Cratchit child, I think, <laughs> in A Christmas Carol, and I worked my way up to Tiny Tim. And Cabaret, weren't you a Kit Kat girl in Cabaret, Mom? I was Mom? a Kit Kat girl, and I costumed it. <laughs> Barbara Krakowski says her daughter was a born performer. Did you ever dream that she would be as successful as she is? I had faith that she was going to work, but I, I never dreamed like this. You, you, you just burst with pride. You say, oh, my goodness. Rusty and Audrey, cousins Vicky and Dale. And oh, my goodness. Mom was on set when Jane, then 14, filmed a now famous line in National Lampoon's Vacation. 
I'm going steady. And I French kiss. So everybody does that. Yeah, but Daddy says I'm the best at it. You knew it was funny. Oh, please. They had to glue my mouth shut. Laughing. Well, welcome to New Jersey. Well, thank you so much. This is the full experience. <laughs> Jane prides herself on her Jersey moxie. Oh, you're doing it! <laughs> but I don't want to hurt you. I and she can lure a reluctant reporter onto the New Jersey rink where she skated as a team. Got it. And now we spin. No, no, we're on the Wait, <laughs> Still in high school, she glided onto Broadway in the part of a train car in Andrew Lloyd Webber's all-skating musical, Starlight Express. I've been down, 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 I've been down. But America really noticed Jane Krakowski in 1997 when she played an office assistant in the cutting-edge dramedy, Ally McBeal. Elaine was slightly slutty and always I don't seeking, know what you're talking seeking about. Seeking attention. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's a what? A face bra. Next to aging and sun exposure, jogging is one of the leading causes of wrinkles. Her invention, the face bra, was one of the series' memorable gags. Elaine, you look like Hannibal Lecter. I may look silly, but this thing is a gold mine. It's another of her scene-stealing, but not lead parts. You get a character role. I call them second bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always the second banana. <laughs> Good morning. Good day. How are you this glorious day? Have you seen but her second banana role in She Loves Me has special meaning for Jane Krakowski. Oh, and here's the picture of my dad as Kodai. Yes, in her dressing room, she keeps a decades-old photo of her dad performing in the same show. My father is not well right now, and um, I thought this would be the last probably show that he might possibly see me in. And so this is a, a tribute to my dad. A lot of people don't know that that's one of the reasons I took this show. Though her father, suffering from Alzheimer's, has not been able to attend, Krakowski's five-year-old son, Bennett, with former fiancé, clothing designer Robert Godley, has seen Mom on stage. And while she says being a mother is her very favorite role, It's hard to believe how truly domestic Jane Krakowski's career gives her plenty to sing about. It must be kind of fun to know that more and more people know who Jane Krakowski is and will give a production, whether it's television or on Broadway, a chance just because you're in it. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be good. Let's do that. <laughs> Coming up, lifeguards on duty. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This weekend, as many of us make a beeline to the beach, a season opening thank you to those sentries in the sand. The nation's lifeguards, who for this unofficial start of summer 
officially get to work. Teenagers, college students and grads, career professionals with pensions, they all keep watch while millions of us take to the water. According to the American Red Cross, more than 325,000 people last year enrolled in lifeguarding courses. With shows like television's Baywatch, Hollywood has offered up its own glamorized, sometimes satirized conception of our superheroes by the shore. But for folks who are the real thing, courage comes with the job. The United States Life-Saving Association reports more than 95,000 rescues last year. Among the first paid lifeguards, these two gentlemen, Mr.s Headley and Jeffries, put on the payroll by the Atlantic City Beach Patrol back in 1892. Since then, many others have served, including future president Ronald Reagan. So as you pack for the beach this weekend, don't forget your sunscreen. And remember the lifeguard perched on that chair. She's there for you. Ahead, going home. <laughs> <laughs> President Obama's visit to Hiroshima this past Friday is one indication of how the legacy of the war with Japan has come full circle. The growing number of wartime flags returning to Japan is another. Here's Lee Cowan. Opposing sides in war share little, other than perhaps a battlefield, and the longing to go home. Glenn Stockdale of Billings, Montana, did come home. He fought the Japanese in the Pacific until 1945. As a young staff sergeant, he saw things most of us can't even imagine. And until the day he died, at age 84, kept most of it to himself. Never talked about the war. It just sort of, he just locked it all away? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's Glenn's son, Terry. What he knew of his dad's service came mostly from rummaging through his father's old footlocker. It was in the basement, so as kids, you go down looking and see what's in here, what's in there. Among other things, Terry found a Japanese flag, carefully folded, stained with blood, and covered in writing. Then he found another, and another. They were memories of the war, a trophy, you know. Spoils of war. Collecting them was commonplace. Pictures abound of U.S. servicemen posing with the flags. Known as a Yosegaki Hinamaru, Japanese soldiers carried them as keepsakes into battle. Good luck charms of sorts, with wishes from family and friends scrawled around the rising sun. Keepsakes in battle. But in Glenn Stockdale's footlocker, the flags had become just ghosts of a long-ago enemy. And nearing the end of his father's life, Terry suggested it was time the flags go home. What did you say to him? I thought it'd be nice to send it back to Japan. And he, he said no. Because? Must be the hate from fighting people and just war. I don't know what that does to individuals. I've never been there. So that's where things and the flags sat for more than a decade until Terry heard another World War II vet speak of the flags. His name was Leland Bud Lewis. Bud was in the same infantry division as Terry's father, the 41st. They never met, 
Bud was behind the front lines, sending the bombs and the bullets up. Something that at age 95, Bud still doesn't take lightly. I provided all the ammunition that killed all these folks. And I'm not exactly totally happy that I did that. But at the time, that was my job. I, was, I couldn't question that. Why now? Why is it important, you think, to, to return the flags now? Well, uh, it's, it's a closure. You can't keep hating people. Inspired, Terry Stockdale packed up one of his father's flags and mailed it to the only place he thought could help a home in a small town along the Columbia River in Washington, where the flags are celebrated with a ceremony. This is not the flag, it is the spirit of the soldier. We are wishing he can find a way to find a family in Japan. Keiko and her husband, Rex Zeke, run a nonprofit called the Obon Society. In Japan, Obon is a festival honoring the spirits of ancestors. They've turned their attic into a makeshift war flag research center. When we started out, we thought we were just helping Japanese families receive heirlooms. Then, as this progressed, we realized we were connecting these families. Lots of personal messages and many signatures. Keiko's own grandfather died fighting in the Pacific, but his grave is empty. No bone, no remaining item, nothing came back. But one day, his flag did. We all thought that the spirit of the grandfather finally wanted to come home to see us. It had such a profound effect. They wanted to see if they could identify more soldiers' flags and send them back to Japan. Once word got out, they were stunned. Flags from veterans or their families started arriving almost weekly. Sometimes they include photographs of their father as a soldier or family pictures of themselves now. It's just this, it is this connection of this family to this family that, that were brought together through war. So far, they've reunited about 60 flags with Japanese families and have more than 100 they're still researching, all at their own expense. I mean, you guys have essentially spent your life savings to do this. Well, but it's just very important things to do. Terry Stockdale waited and hoped. And then came word that the Obon Society had traced his flag back to a man named Yosagushu Kishi, a young soldier who kissed his wife, his seven-month-old son, and his two-year-old daughter goodbye and never saw them again. Those children, Masaru, now 73, and his sister, Kayoko, 75. Both live outside Osaka. They knew little of their father until one day last December, the phone rang. When I got the call, I thought this was impossible. My mind just went blank. After 70 years, I never dreamed something of my father's would surface. They found out Terry not only had their father's flag, but he wanted to come to Japan to deliver it himself. Anxious, they met Terry at the train station. What happened next says it all. I mean, yeah, that's just beyond comprehension what it meant to them. It's just kind of, you know, it just wasn't some souvenir. It was actually their father coming home. 
Terry officially handed it over at a formal ceremony and then stepped back to watch two people who never knew their father unfurl his flag together. We don't know the warmth of his hands, the sound of his voice. I can't remember a thing about my father. And I said, I'm sorry, Dad, to that flag. I'm so sorry. Now, where Mr. Kishi prays, sits a framed photo of Terry, a captured moment, a generation in the making. You know, the old saying, it's better to give than receive. It just feels so good to do something for somebody. As for his own father, well, Terry hopes that Staff Sergeant Glenn Stockdale is also finally at peace. He'd be proud of me. He would know it's the right thing to do. I was put in a body bag, toe-tagged, and taken to the morgue. Coming up, back from the dead. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Memorial Day has special meaning for one Vietnam War veteran from Michigan. You might say he's back from the dead. Steve Hartman has his story. There are 58,315 names on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And this is the story of why there's not one more. A story about a soldier who came as close to dying as any man alive. I've never heard a story like this. No. It's the kind of thing nightmares are made of. Our blessings. John Cologne's blessing of a nightmare began on February 19, 1968. His Army Airborne platoon was on patrol near the Katai River when he and his men came under intense enemy fire. All hell broke loose. John was shot four times. I heard guys say I was dead. Cologne is dead. Cologne's dead. Leave him alone. You heard people saying that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was put in a body bag, toe-tagged, and taken to the morgue. He came in as a DOA. Lieutenant Curtis Washington was an officer at the battalion aid station and worked at the morgue. It was a job he took so seriously that just to make sure he never sent a live soldier home in a box. On his own, he used to open up each body bag and take a pen to the feet. That's what I would do. This is his foot. I go. He was testing the planter reflex. I do it twice. And I did that. And he went, oh. And I did it again. Oh. And I said, wow. And that is how John Cologne came back from the dead, which John says is a mixed blessing. He lost his life. He lost his life. He lost his life. He lost his life. Eight soldiers, about a third of his platoon, died that day. You still wonder why me. Even today you keep asking that? Absolutely. Why did you survive? It is a hopelessly rhetorical question. But as we walk through the cemetery where he would have been buried, John shared what may be part of the reason. So that's when I thought, that let's do something. A few years ago, he started sending flowers on Memorial Day to the graves of all the men who died in that battle. Later, he expanded to everyone who died in his battalion during the whole war. More than $8,000 worth of flowers, 
for 160 graves. And now he's calling on you to join him to adopt a veteran's grave on Memorial Day. One day a year we're asking somebody to do something. To clean it up and lay some flowers so that eventually every Vietnam veteran can be rightfully remembered. I hope I'm around here to witness that. Maybe that'll answer that question, why? Certainly, something to live for. Then I saw her face. Next. Now I'm a believer. The monkeys. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. How's that for a blast from the past? Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees. They first swept out of the pop music scene 50 years ago. And though time has claimed one of them, the others are still very much with us and talking to Anthony Mason for the record. Here we come. In the fall of 1966, four madcap musicians, a mix of the Beatles and the Marx Brothers, made their debut on American television. Hey, hey, with the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. For the next 58 episodes, the monkeys would turn pop culture upside down. Don't you want to be famous, the idol of millions? No, we just want to be revered by a small minority. A small minority? Small minority, small minority, <laughs> like a tribe of African pygmies. Get it, pygmies, huh? Half a century uh, later. Does, does the big 5-0 mean anything really to you guys? Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to ask us so much. Mike Nesmith, Mickey Dolenz, and Peter Tork are still yeah, monkeying around. Then I saw her face. The Monkees would outsell the Beatles and the Stones in 1967. Their first four albums went to number one. A made-for-TV band, they were assembled by the show's producers, Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson, who put this ad in Variety, seeking four insane boys. Mike Nesmith was playing at the Troubadour when a friend came in and said, I just saw this ad in Variety. I think you should go down and try out for it. So I did. I got the job. He went to the audition in the same knit cap he'd wear for the show. But I don't think I'm a goof. I don't think you're a goof. Right. Okay. I think I'm out of work. <laughs> I hope I get this serious. <laughs> but a goof? No, I'm not. I didn't go to the cattle call. I, I'd already had a series, you'll see. I see you're practicing to be a musician, huh? Uh-uh, drummer boy. Mickey oh, Dolenz okay. had had a lead in a show called Circus Boy. Peter Tork, a folk singer, heard about the auditions from his friend, Stephen Stills, who'd been passed over. So Steve had to settle for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He's never forgiven me. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I'm to ask one of you a little quick thing. Davy Jones, a British actor who'd already had Broadway experience, completed the cast. Did the four of you connect pretty quickly? Instantly. It was scary. There were no duds among us, yeah. uh, except me. But I, I wasn't really a dud. I played one on television. This cufflink contains a miniaturized tape recorder. If I wear two of them, can I record in stereo? <laughs> you know, Bob said to me, well, Bob Rafelson 
So, well, we could have hired any four guys. I said, yeah, but you didn't. You hired us four. Yeah. He said, well, but any four guys could do what you're doing. I said, no, they couldn't have. Because what we are, we brought our, the force of our character to it. But the boys would butt heads with the show's music producer, Don Kirshner, who used outside session musicians to make the Monkees' first records. I thought they wanted me to play for them. No, I was mistaken. <laughs> uh, and how did you feel about that? I was mortified. And this, they were doing Clarksville. And I wrote a counterpoint. I had studied music, and I brought it to them, and they said, no, no, Peter, you don't understand. This is the record. It's all done. We don't need you. Is it true that, that Davy Jones at one point dumped a Coca-Cola on top of Don Kirshner's oh, head? It was me. <laughs> it was me. You did that? It was me. Oh, he poured the Coke over his head, and I lost it. <laughs> and I think when I lost it, I think it really just made Donnie look like, oh, no, they're laughing at me. Yes, Donnie, we are. <laughs> oh, those silly monkeys. The fictional band became such a phenomenon, fans wanted to see them live. It's like, well, yeah, now what? So the producers finally allowed them to play. And their third album, Headquarters, was entirely their own. But critics had already branded the Monkees the Prefab Four. It was a kind of, you guys aren't real. It's like, well, define your terms. <laughs> you were a fake band that became a real band that wasn't really real? Uh, well, yeah, see, now you're off in the weeds with me. <laughs> Because I, I don't know the answer to that question, and Mick doesn't know, and, and if Peter says he does, he's lying. So you felt like a band. Well, you know, it, it, it's, uh, no, yes, maybe. I've often said it's like Leonard Nimoy really becoming a Vulcan. <laughs> the series ended after just two seasons. Cross at the green, not in between. He's been out in the sun too long. He was no bargain in the shade. And the monkeys eventually went their separate ways. I've always feel blessed to be part, have been part of this, you know. Dolan's became a TV producer and director in England. Nesmith started his own band. So did Torque, who settled in Connecticut. Look who's here, the monkeys. But reruns have kept reintroducing the monkeys to new audiences. To mark their 50th anniversary, Dolan's and Torque have headed out on tour again. And the Monkees have recorded a new album. Produced by Fountains of Wayne frontman Adam Schlesinger, a longtime fan. Schlesinger reached out to other indie rock stars who loved the band, Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, Britain's Paul Weller and Noel Gallagher, and Weezer's Rivers Cuomo have all written songs for the new Monkees record, Good Times. It's a pretty impressive list. It's a great list, isn't it? 
And, and, and again, me, lucky. They say you need love to love. They also unearthed an unreleased vintage monkeys track that features the late Davy Jones, who died of a heart attack in 2012. David was something. His loss was completely unexpected to you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The youngest of us to go first. When you first had to go out there without Davy, how did that feel? Mickey said, well, how am I going to sing Daydream Believer? Right. And I said, well, you can't. It doesn't belong to us anymore. It belongs to them. This could be your last tour? No, we're going to re-tour again next year. You are? Hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll tour until one of us drops, and then the other will go on as the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, it's the monkey. And people say, I monkey around. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has his critics on both sides of the aisle. With Jan Crawford this morning, Mr. Leader McConnell tries to make himself heard over the partisan din. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell says leader Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell has told President Obama has vowed to block. He is the most obstructionist, bill blockingist. Said it would be a waste. To of many, time Kentucky to Senator Mitch McConnell is the face of obstruction. Well, common cause used to call me Darth Vader. Look, I Does think that ever bother you? No, it doesn't. Because I why think you, I, I, let me tell you why. I think you have to accept the fact that you can't make everybody happy. Liberals think he made clear his intention to block the president's agenda in 2010 when he told a reporter, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. But there was a second part after that sentence. Which was that in the meantime, we needed to see what we could do together and make some progress for the country. Which so the was, back half of that got cut off. Which was neatly snipped off uh, by my political opponents, which is understandable, but the people who would call me an obstructionist overlook some inconvenient facts. Just ask his conservative Tea Party opponents. They think I'm an Obama enabler or something. An Obama right? enabler. <laughs> the Senate Majority Leader responds to his critics in his first book, The Long Game. How'd you come up with the title? <laughs> well, first of all, I've been around a while. <laughs> and second, it took me a long time to get to where I had hoped to get. You know, for most of us, success is the long road. That road has taken Mitch McConnell a long way from rural Alabama, where he was born, and at age two, stricken with polio. While his father was serving in World War II, McConnell's mother drove him to Warm Springs, Georgia, the polio treatment facility established by President Franklin Roosevelt. After two years, the nurses told McConnell's mother her son would walk without a brace. He'd have a normal life. Then, at 13, McConnell moved to Louisville. 
But does so, it feel the same? Well, it looks very similar, and it was very intimidating to me. Because and three years later, he was an underdog for student council president, trying to outmaneuver his opponents. So I would sl slide the pamphlets through here. I said, um, join us and vote for Mitch McConnell for president, and it would list the football players and the basketball players and the cheerleaders and the homecoming queens, all of them that I'd lined up to endorse me. But wait, how did you get the, the most popular, prominent kids in the school to endorse? You asked them. <laughs> <I> asked them. <laughs> he won, and McConnell, a pack rat, saved his mementos from that race and every other throughout his nearly 40 years in elected office. And switched to Mitch for senator. Much of it is on display at his alma mater, the University of Louisville, which houses his papers and those of his wife, Elaine Chow, labor secretary under George W. Bush. The longtime Washington power couple now spends most weekends in Kentucky, a far cry from their first date, suggested by a mutual friend. I just got this call, I think, out of the blue from Mitch's assistant. From his assistant? I think my assistant answered back to his assistant, and that's how the first date was set up. <laughs> With your assistant. And it literally was a blind date, because I'd never seen her before. A divorced father of three, McConnell married Chow in 1993 on Ronald Reagan's birthday. Well, before he was leader, he actually cooked. So he's actually a wonderful husband. Oh, I yeah, call I him my low maintenance husband. <laughs> On the campaign trail, her warmth contrasts with McConnell's wonkier side. An immigrant from China, Chow came to the United States when she was eight years old. I was a child when my father went ahead to make a life for us in America. Chow spoke about her immigrant experience at the 2000 Republican convention. But when asked about this year's presumptive Republican nominee, she firmly avoids the question. Well, this is not a campaign. This is not a film about me, so. <laughs> and when you sit down with McConnell, he's hardly more forthcoming on the subject of Donald Trump. You think Donald Trump can win? I do. Are you going to support him? I am. Does it cause you pause when you think about how divided this country is and how he is causing such division. I mean, Republicans in your party are burning their voter registration cards. They're saying never Trump. Well, one thing I, I'm pretty calm about is that this is nowhere near the most divisive period in American history. But what protects us in this country against big mistakes being made is the structure, the Constitution, the institutions. Um, so, no matter how unusual a personality may be who gets elected to office, there are constraints in this country. You don't get to do anything you want to. So I'm very optimistic about America. I'm not depressed about the nature of the debate. Since becoming majority leader in 2015, McConnell struck deals with the administration on major transportation, education and cybersecurity bills. He has warm words for Joe Biden, but says the president can be a challenge. I admire his intellect. It is a little bit grating. To, grating. Grating to kind of, you know, be lectured to. And I've heard this complaint from Democrats as well. This is not a partisan observation. You know, I pretty much know what he thinks, and he ought to know what I think. I'm pretty much interested in how we figure the way forward rather than listening to a rather extensive discussion of his views. There's one area where McConnell will not budge, Merrick Garland's nomination to replace Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. No wavering on that. 
None. Merrick no. Garland will be on the Supreme Court if Hillary Clinton wins and she renominates him. Well, if he's on the Supreme Court, he'll be nominated by the next president. Regardless of what happens in the November election, the 74-year-old McConnell has made it clear. He's playing the long game. America's a land of second opportunities. Everybody has barriers to overcome, some more than others. So I don't want to act like I'm all that unique. America's full of stories like mine. This is a special country with enormous opportunity for those who don't quit. This is Anthony Weiner calling. Next, David Edelstein on Anthony Weiner, the movie. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. So what's worth seeing as the summertime movie season begins? That turns out to be a tough question for our David Edelstein. Memorial Day weekend, it's a great time to see movies. But, wow, there's not a lot out there. My local multiplex has Alice Through the Looking Glass on three screens. And it's a big, phantasmagorical nothing burger. On the other four screens, X-Men Apocalypse. I actually love that one. You are all my children. It's moving. It's scary. It captures both the pain of being an outsider, a mutant. and the ruinous temptations of superpower. But you do need to have seen all five, six, nine, twelve other X-Men movies. Now, the fact that you'll turn into an animal if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here is not something that should upset you. And there's a nasty little futuristic satire called The Lobster, with Colin Farrell as a guy who needs to couple up in a few days or he'll get turned into an animal. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. You'll either love this, as I do, or send me four-letter tweets. Ah, but... There is another choice. The punchline is true about me. I did the dumb thing. In theaters and on demand, the terrific behind-the-scenes documentary, Wiener, which charts the 2013 mayoral run of former New York Congressman Anthony Wiener. Oh, my God. I can't believe I gave the press the finger. What's an apt metaphor for the movie? Car crash? Too much. Train wreck? Too mundane. It's more like the Titanic. You see that iceberg coming, and you know it's horrible, but you gotta watch. You'll recall in 2011, Wiener got caught texting pictures to women of the very part of his anatomy from which he'd spent a lifetime trying, owing to his name, to dissociate himself. In 2013, he and his wife, Huma Abedin, an aide to Hillary Clinton, posed for a New York Times magazine cover, and phase two, the comeback, was on. Directors Josh Kriegman and Elise Steinberg had incredible access. Anyone have a voter? And the weird thing is, at first, despite relentless ridicule and obnoxious puns, they looked to be covering a wiener. I mean, a winner. Maybe he'd now be New York's mayor, except... How many women were there? Can you remember? What I would like to talk about is housing in the Bronx. Any questions about that? Why should we trust your judgment? 
It's amazing Wiener didn't pull the plug on the documentary when the second scandal broke, when a porn actress released photos and texts he'd sent after leaving Congress when he was working on his marriage. But the film crew stays and the campaign perseveres. Had there been multiple online exchanges with multiple people, or was it just this one? Can I just say multiple people? I'm bound to say, I found Wiener less hateful than pitiful. He's not a confident liar. It's like he knows we'll see through him. Do you believe you're suffering from any sort of addiction? Um. To me, it speaks to the nature of modern documentaries and reality shows. Oscar Wilde once defined scandal as gossip made tedious by morality. But if you have behind-the-scenes access to the people, it's anything but tedious. It's riveting. This is the worst. Doing a documentary on my scandal. Which makes you feel, even if, like me, you think it's an amazing movie, really creepy. And next week here on Sunday Morning, mystery man James Patterson turns a new page. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.